Hello, Michelle Laurie here. It's no secret that Australia's property market is out of control these days, but I, for one, can't seem to stop following along. I've become a bit obsessed with it, to be honest. What's up, what's down, and who on earth is paying those prices for those houses? So I want to personally recommend a podcast for you. It's called Real Property. It'll keep you across the latest information on the Australian property market in a clear and easy-to-digest way. Real Property, building a community of more informed property buyers. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Anabotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. This episode of Australian True Crime deals with violence and suicide. If you need to speak to someone, call Lifeline on 13 11 14. When you are confronted with the law in, in various shapes and forms, my father, mm. uh, for him to be confronted by a team of police on my parents' property, I think that scared the, the daylights out of him. Travis Winks is a journalist and radio broadcaster. He's worked all over Australia and spent a couple of years working in the US at the ESPN Sports Centre, where he covered the world's biggest events like the ESPY Awards and the Beijing Olympics. For a guy from Ipswich in Queensland, it was a dream come true. But there was no magic formula. Travis worked hard, did right by people, and life had a way of staying more or less on track. That was his expectation because that's the way he was raised. 
But in 2016, Travis and the entire Wings family lived through a series of events that changed his outlook forever. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. Travis Winks wrote a book about the events that changed the course of the lives of everyone he loved in 2016. It's called Shattered, 67 Days to a Family's Self-Destruction, and he joined me to talk about it. I started by asking how often Travis talks about what happened to his family in 2016. It comes up in conversation all the time. Like My wife and I were talking yesterday. We've been playing music to our little four-month-old because he seems to settle with music. And I was clutching at straws one night and started playing him a heap of Australian songs. And like I Am Australian, uh, Waltzing Matilda, that sort of stuff. Uh, plenty of uh, Peter Allen and uh, Tenerfield Sadler. Anyway, True Blue came up and that was my dad's song. And uh, that was played at his funeral. And I also sung it about 12 months after his funeral when we put his ashes uh, in the ground in the cemetery. My wife was like, oh, our little fella loves, loves hearing that song. And she goes, how do you feel about that? And I said, well, I think about the good times, not the, not the bad times, because there's lots of, lots of happy thoughts and lots of good times that, you know, you can't let get overrun by the bad things that happen. So at least, my, uh, at least the new addition, who'll never know he's Poppy Russell likes his song. Your book is all about the fact that your dad's life was overwhelmingly good times and he was such a strong man and the way the story ended was so out of character. Blew me away. I did not forecast the events that happened to my three family members. I mean, my brother was such a strong man as well and my sister was was quite strong and independent and then dad he was the the glue of the family and you know Michelle you always uh, hear people say you, you need to ask those that you think are doing it tough or have a lot on their plate are they okay how are they tracking you know can you help them out and I had a number of conversations with my father about all of that stuff with my brother and my sister and then I was blindsided I had absolutely no idea that he was that vulnerable. Tell us about your family. Let us get to know your family. Tell us about your childhood. My childhood was awesome, you know. <laughs> um, my parents were very loving. They were very giving and they gave us four kids all of the tools and all of the support to essentially do whatever we wanted to do. We'd go away on family holidays. Um, Where did you grow up? Grew up just outside of Ipswich, which is um, mm. a, a reasonably big uh, town just outside of Brisbane. So we had a, a small property out there, and that's where my dad taught me how to tie wire on fences, which I still do to this day because we've got a deer problem where we live here in Wollongong, and I've got to try and keep them away from my plants, and I use some of, uh, some of his tricks. But, you know, we'd holiday down the Gold Coast, down the southern end of the Gold Coast around Coolangatta every year. You know, we were sent to, to private schools. We went to Ipswich Grammar, which was the same school that my father went to and my brother went there. And thankfully, him and I got to share one year there because as he was in grade 12, I was in year eight, even though he used to get annoyed because he didn't like his annoying little brother hanging around him. But, um, you know, I, I did my best to, uh, to aggravate him as much as I could, as little brothers do. 
but he he looked after me, my brother. You know, uh, I think as you get older, as you get into your to your mid teenage years, having a little brother's not so cool. And we did have times like that. But all in all, he looked after me. And I think the sad thing is in my family is, look, there are some mental health issues. My mum suffers from depression and has done for a very long time. And I I probably pin that on, you know, what she went through as a as a as a child and, and more so as a as a very young woman when she lost her mother at a young age when she was like 18 and mum was one of 10 and she was I think number three in the in the pecking order there so her and dad actually brought up a lot of mum's younger brothers so mum carried a lot from that my dad didn't have a great relationship with uh with his father his mum loved him but I think it was kind of like a secret love because his dad was a very hard tough man so look there were some there were some issues and um my eldest sister obviously she had a, she had a great life until she fell in love with the wrong man and my brother you know like mental illness isn't contagious so i think you you've either got some kind of uh susceptibility in your dna or certain things happen in your life where it becomes all consuming for you and he definitely became a victim to the demons that were that were in his head so i think I, it definitely runs in families yeah look i, I touch wood that i don't have any issues pop up in my life life because I, I love my life and like knowing that mental illness is a is an issue within my family I'm, I'm i'm looking over my shoulder making sure that i'm okay but i'm not afraid to speak michelle you know like i talk to my friends and i i absolutely talk to my wife and my mother and you know i'm not going to mask any issues that i may have and thankfully after all the crap that we've been through i think i'm okay at the moment yeah, I really do believe too that facing it and talking about it and certainly talking about it with your partner the way that you do goes a long way. It does. It does. And, you know, we had a lot. We had a lot to deal with. Um, you know, and as, as Amanda and I, as our relationship blossomed, like she's learning more things about, you know, my past as I learn about her past and her family and... Uh, I, I kept hitting her with little stories from from the past, um, you know, about my father's relationship with his dad and what my mum went through as a as a younger woman, and you know, it certainly helped me cleanse. I suppose that's part of the reason why I wrote this book because I was very, very, very cranky the day that I found out about another family tragedy and um, then I started tapping away and it was my way to vent because I'd had to deal with so much after these 67 days that I highlighted in Shattered that I never had a chance to grieve and Shattered was my chance to grieve. It's become a very public way to grieve but we all have choices and this is something that I harp on about to my nieces and nephews and, and my children in a watered down fashion, particularly the younger ones, that... We all have choices, and I, I hope that this story encourages people to think about their lives, their choices, and their relationships differently. There's a lot to take in, but the snowball effect from one bad choice or poor choice can have ramifications on people that you don't even know. For example, those poor coppers that turned up to my parents' property that afternoon can you take us now to when your family first started dealing with police? 
Was it your sister's interaction with police because of the domestic violence in her relationship? Yeah. Or was it your brother? Well, it was probably a combination of the two because my sister dealt with a fair bit of that stuff by herself. So if yeah. you single it, like as a family as a whole, you know, it wasn't until later. But she obviously made various complaints to police about some of the treatment that she was receiving. And then, you know, like my brother... I mean, he had to run in with the cops when he was, I'm going to say, like, 17. I reckon he had one of his What mates. was his caper, your brother? What was... what was his caper? He was a bloody legend. That was his caper. He was, he was a champion. Of course. Bloke. He was the type of bloke that everyone wanted to have a beer with. But if you rubbed him the wrong way, he would cut you, and he, he did know how, how to hold a grudge. He could hold a grudge. I think he got right. that from my dad's dad. But um, I, I remember um, one, one day I was at home and... Trent and Amy, um, you know, they they were out and, and, and Trent was out and he had one of his mate's driver's licence who was a little bit older than him in his wallet and he got picked up by the cops in Ipswich and they nailed him for having this ID. Now, I don't believe he was using it because, seriously, it'd be like having Bert and Ernie. Like, there is no comparison, right? <laughs> You know, you're not going to get away with that. Like, good luck, champ. But he he did get in strife for that, and he he had a few um, he had a few assault incidents in his in his years when he was out on the drink. But I suppose you know, like that's alarming. I'm not I'm not playing that down because that's serious stuff. But would and, it be fair to say that Trent was one of those blokes who sort of started out as a bit of a scallywag, and then as he got older, it sort of stopped being funny and cute and it got a bit more serious and he did grow up out of that getting into trouble but he still okay. went out on the drink because he worked for a beer company right i mean people would say that's the best job ever but you got to do a lot of socializing in that game so therefore you do probably have to drink a few beers um so no he 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 cleaned up his attitude as far as getting into trouble as he might have when he was a 17 18 year old so how did he end up then Living at your parents' holiday unit, how did that evolve? Because his marriage fell apart. Right. And, you know, there's two sides to every story, and I know a lot of his story, but I can't... Oh, listen, uh, that can happen. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine that he would have been the easiest person to live with when he was starting to spiral into depression. Um, and mm. he, he took a redundancy from his job and bought into a, a, a small business of his own, and he didn't really enjoy that, and I think he missed missed his work. In the, in the beer game and uh, his marriage fell apart and he ended up moving south down to, to Coolangatta and in mum and dad's unit but he needed a lot of help and the problem with him was is that he'd often refused to take his medication he'd often refused to go to appointments he didn't accept help from almost everyone who offered it to him he, he did from, from mum and dad to a certain point but he was a very very challenging person to deal with because he, I don't think he would admit that he did have a big problem, but you know what? He had a massive problem and then it consumed him. So he ended up being, by that stage, just a worry, a real worry yep. for everyone in the family. Yeah, well, you know, he, he became a, a shell of his former self. Like you could see the skeleton and the, the, the external frame, but inside you had no idea what was going on in his head. And and back to your point before when, you know, like or when we were talking about him growing up and that sort of thing, it was at that point when he was down the coast where he did find himself in some trouble 
with the police again. So he had a he had that sort of you know that angry on the drink kind of thing, stupid boy stuff happen. Say when he was seventeen, and then fast forward to like when he's forty odd, and and he was back in trouble. Your family's reaching crisis point when Trent is just a, a big worry for everyone. He's staying yeah. in mum and dad's holiday unit because he can't afford rent and all that kind of stuff. He's such a worry that at one point your parents are ringing their, the neighbours of the holiday unit, asking them to check on him because they can't get him to answer the phone. Yep. A neighbour goes in there with a spare key. Yep. And what does he find? He found my brother unconscious, foaming from the mouth in the bedroom. That's what he found. He found a bloke that was just clinging to life. Yep, so thank God for mum and dad, their oh. intuition. Uh, mums always know, don't they? Yeah. Hey? They feel it in their in their guts, but 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 mum mum had that feeling that something was up and he caused them a great deal of worry and continued to do so after he was taken off to hospital and spent a considerable amount of time in intensive care. Yeah, because it wasn't quick, was it? I mean, it was touch and go for a long time. Yeah, well, we didn't we didn't know what damage, like if he, if he survived, we didn't know what the damage would be. Uh, he took a substantial prescription drug overdose. And uh, thankfully... <laughs> Thankfully, he uh, he came to, and and the damage was not too bad. I mean, you know, you, you damage your organs, and and he was he, to talk to him. I, I I went and saw him not long after he got out of hospital, and uh, he was he was slower. But deep down, I thought, you know, hopefully, maybe that's the wake up call that he needed to have. To it's a big one. But, but it's not like he sat up in bed and said, "Oh, thank God, I've seen the light." And no, no, you know what he didn't. He like this is brutal. And again, like you know, uh, attempted suicide and suicide really annoys me. Oh, yeah. It really pisses me off because there's it's not the answer. It is absolutely not the answer. Uh, there's no other way to say it. It's not the answer. Full stop. He was adamant he wanted it done. He just, he was, like, he was he was annoyed with himself that that he woke up. It's like, geez, mate, you got a second chance here. Like, you know, we can we can help you and you can have a clean slate. And, yep, you know what? Your marriage is, is, is over, but you've still got your children and you still have a brain and you're still very clever. And, you know, he would have been a wonderful asset to many businesses, my brother. But he just just threw it all away. Like, just couldn't see that he had a clean slate, like, fresh start. Like, you know, you're down on the southern southern end of the Gold Coast. The the world is your oyster again, my friend. Like, uh, that's what I would say to him. But he just wouldn't buy it. And at the same time, your sister Amy is coming to a real fork in the road in her marriage, in her relationship. Yeah, she wasn't married. Oh, okay. She was, she was promised that, uh, that they'd get married, but uh, he never... Never came through uh, with that. I'm glad that never happened, actually. Well, talking about mental health, she's reaching a point where she's just cracked. Oh, mate, she cracked. She she cracked like an egg on a hot plate. She reached her point and, and she just kept going. She just kept going. Tell us what happened. Okay, so her relationship with him was 
was an ugly one. You know, like I suppose if you broke it down into a percentage, there was there was some love because there always has to be some love, and she fell in love with the wrong man. He uh, he was extremely controlling and dominating uh, and violent. I think I think looking at her physical abuse is is totally wrong. Don't get me wrong. But the emotional abuse that she endured, and I'm sure many women endure, and men too, men too, men aren't immune to cop and emotional abuse. Mm-hmm. I think that 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 is what wore her down. And she snapped one day. Uh, she wanted to confront him face to face and have a chat. He didn't want to play ball, so she, uh, in her little car, tried to. Well, she did. She didn't try. She slammed into his car in anger and frustration at low speeds. He had a SUV. But she just didn't do that once. She just kept going again and again. And then she, um, a short time after, she located him and she tried to do it again and damaged some of uh, his friends' vehicles. So she didn't physically harm him, but mm. she did the wrong thing. So she would argue that she had been the victim of violence and abuse for years and then she finally... Snapped. ...fought back. Yeah, but snapped. No, no one wants to listen to you, Michelle. Mm. No, no one wanted to listen to her. I mean, we did, but no one that, that can really enforce change. They didn't want to listen to her. All they, all they wanted to do was nail her for the offences that she committed and she was nailed. However, she does say, and it takes a brave woman to say this, and again, I, I, she did some stupid things. I've told her that she did stupid things, right? She handled that poorly. But again, mm. walk in the shoes and see how you go. This is what annoys me about when people judge. Don't judge until you try them on and do them up. Because she went off to work after that? Yeah, she went off to work because then she went back and had that second crack. With the, with the ramming of the cars. But she says, and I commend her for this because she is brave, and that is that going to prison saved her life. Wow. Now you think about that. So tell that. us what happened that day. She went to work yep. and then, to her surprise... Uh, the police had tried to contact her because a complaint had been made for her earlier behaviour. Fair enough. Mm. I probably would have made a complaint too. And that was like poking a snake. And uh, she was cranky. She went back for a, a little bit more ramming. I don't even... Well, her car ended up wrecked, but she did that herself at the very end of that little sequence because she did try and take her life after that as she was driving away. She put the foot to the floor towards a roundabout and whammo, but she woke up. And she woke up oh, in, the, in, in trouble with the police. And um, so I think she... Was she taken into custody... That day, that night. Yeah, well, she she'd been she she went to a uh, a mental health hospital, and she was released. But then the police the police had to collect all of their evidence and their statements. And uh, I reckon I've read that brief of evidence probably fifty times. It's a pretty substantial document. And there is, look, you know what she went through some bad times in that relationship, and she was absolutely a victim of domestic violence. But she handled that day and that moment in time very poorly and she should have just walked away. So she ended up in custody is the long and the short of it. 
she ended up in custody mm-hmm. and for a family under a lot of pressure already, that was incredibly difficult. Yeah. Yeah, because she was one of the first to get down to the hospital to Trent. Because, like, we're yeah. talking, this is, like, two and a half weeks after each other sort of thing, right? Mm. Like, it was quick. It, it was really quick. And, you know, my dad and my mum, they both carried it, right? But dad dad especially because he he was the captain of the team, Michelle. He, yeah. you know, he kept us all together. And he, he, he was the one that if anyone ever really needed anything, he was the one you say, hey, I, I need a bit of a hand, you know? And, and he... He would always deliver, and he was so uh, loving. He had too much love, you know. He he had so, so much love, but he carried that weight. He had my brother, and he would say, you know, Trav, I'm, we're going to get him right. We're going to get him to therapy. We're going to nurse him through. We're going to get him back on his, on his two feet. He'll be fine. And then with Amy, he was very concerned about the legal proceedings, and, and how he would navigate through that, assisting her, having the right advice, and then ultimately trying to get her situation sorted, whatever the punishment would be. You must have felt incredibly helpless, yeah. your dad, during this period of time. Yeah, because, well, you know, like if you, if you rang dad and said, oh, mate, I, I can't make my... I can't pay the electricity bill this month. Can you, could you please swing me 300 bucks? It's not a problem. Like, that's easy. If you rang him and said, oh, Dad, I need, need a hand with fixing this or moving this, not a problem. He can do that with his eyes shut, right? But when you start talking about the complexities of these particular issues, a son that's gone extremely close to committing suicide and a daughter who is in custody on a range of serious charges, like charges that could have resulted in multiple years behind bars. <sighs> uh, how, how do you deal with that? How, how do you deal with that? Well, on top of that, your parents were trying to navigate the prison system, which is confronting and confusing to anyone who's never dealt with it before. And they're trying to get their heads around it at a very basic level, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, from visitation to getting mm. the clearances to being able to transfer money and... When you fast forward to November 17, 2016, it was getting money to Amy in the Brisbane Women's Correctional Centre that probably pushed Dad over the edge. You know, and that there, there is no handbook on, oh, you know, like could you imagine someone printing a book saying, here, here's what to do when a loved one or a friend ends up in the slammer. Here's what you need to do to be able to do all the stuff. Like it's, it's not the type of reading you want to sit down you know, on well, the couch and have a cup of coffee with. Um, it's one of those stupid things that they probably would say, Corrections Queensland would say, yeah, there is. It's on our website or it's here. You know, one of those institutions would say, yeah, yeah, we've done all that. But for us, we don't know how to access that information. It's one of those things that unfortunately you have to live through and learn the hard way. Yeah, well, we learnt the hard way. And yeah, there was a lot of frustration from my parents, particularly my father. You know, my sister rang me from prison. I was the first phone call that she made from inside the Brisbane Women's Correctional Centre. And uh, that was the morning of that day. So it was November 17 in the morning. And I took the call and 
she was devastated and we cried a lot and it was great to hear her voice and she said that she needed some some funds transferred because that's how they buy paper and stamps and a coffee and that sort of thing so I'm like I'll take care of it not a problem so Amanda and I were all for that like we'll 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 make the transfer it's too easy and I I had rung dad not long after that phone call to tell him that I'd spoken to Amy and that you know like she was upset but she's hanging in there and we talked about the money transfer and I said I'm going to do one right now so that'll get her going and then I can talk you through it over the weekend and because there's a process and we'll nail it and then we can just keep doing it and that'll take care of business. But he wanted to get money to her straight away and that's he, he had a, a phone conversation with my other sister later that afternoon and, and Dad became increasingly frustrated with the system and, and that's what led to him walking down the back paddock that Arvo. Your dad's, I suppose, I'm reading your book and I'm sensing anxiety in your dad, a, a growing s- sense of anxiety, like he's being irrational, I think, oh, yeah, he, by this yeah, stage. Yeah. He won't wait for you. He won't listen. He's decided. He wants to transfer this money. He's getting angry, anxious. It's like his mind is racing. All of his feelings of hopelessness and helplessness are really overtaking him. All-consuming for him. It's like, and it's focused on this transfer of money that he can't figure out. Yep, I, I think that that was the head of the pimple. That's what popped, yeah. and that's what got him because he wanted my other sister to drop cash off there, and and she she's a she was busy. She was busy working yes, on the road. Yes, and and I've rep. been in that situation as the eldest child in my family with my father, where he, he would pick something like that, and when I would say to him, "I can't do that right now," it just he just couldn't. St- because that was the thing that he had decided would fix everything. Yeah. Well, Dad wasn't always like that. It was only in no, this neither was mine. Time. Yeah, but in a just... moment of stress where it was just everything was coming to a head. Yeah, it, and it did, it did, and he was extremely irrational and not himself. And uh, he got off the phone to my sister, my other sister, and um, he grabbed his hat, put his boots on, and said to my mum that I'm going down the back paddock to bash my head against the tree so he could bleed out because he had he had blood clots. He was in hospital the weekend before for blood clots. So he 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 was he was talking the game that he was done. Coming up on Australian True Crime, what happened when Travis's father, 65-year-old Russell Winks, walked down the paddock on that day in 2016. If you're experiencing depression or anxiety, call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Thank you to these patrons, Tegan Johnson, Joanna Wilson, Eilish Neglin, Lily Jones, Alana Godden, Melanie Saunders and Nicholas Gonzalez. You know, my dad, he grabbed his hat, put his boots on and said to my mum, I'm going down the back paddock to bash my head against the tree so he could bleed out. He was talking the game that he was done. He had a gun down there. So they had down the bottom of the gully there was a pump. I didn't even know this. I I learnt all this the day after. There was a pump down there and he had a blue tarp hole that his gun was wrapped up in 
And it turns out it was the 22 that we had when we were growing up on our first family farm, like in the in the mid-80s. Like, I don't know when he got that gun. I don't know how he got that gun. But in those days, if you had a hobby farm, you could have a gun. This is all pre-Port Arthur, but he held on to that gun. And I think he held on to it in case he had a situation with an animal. And he had it wrapped up on top of a pump, the water pump down in the in the gully, in a blue tarpaulin. And uh, I had the the unenviable task the following day of collecting that blue tarpaulin and some empty shell casings and the ammunition box that was wrapped in old newspaper and the gun cleaner that he'd had down there. That's what he used. My mum, she went down uh, to talk to him. Um, she left their granddaughter, my niece, uh, up in the house. And, like, mum and dad, like, dad dad could blow up, like, the be- best of them, you know. He, he had a bit of a go off like a firecracker in him uh, throughout the years, but he'd often cool down, <laughs> right? So mum went down to talk to him, and, and there he was with the gun, and um, he told God, her how that, terrifying. that he was done. And uh, my mum said to him, well, if you're done, I'm done too, so you take me out because I love you and I can't live without you. And you know what? Knowing her today, four and a bit years on, she struggles to not like to live without him. It's it's a hard grind for her. But he told her not to be stupid and to go away. And um, their granddaughter was starting to scream because she knew something was up. Um, so mum started to go back up to the house to attend to her and she heard a number of shots fired as she was going back up the hill. So that's that's when she thought that he'd shot himself, so hence the reason why she got onto the neighbour to say, hey, Russell's got a gun, he's fired some shots, you probably heard him, do you reckon you could come over here and go down and have a chat to him and see if he's okay because I'm worried that he shot himself and if he has, he's going to bleed out. And I've got to say, the neighbour is bloody brave because if you got that phone call, do you think you'd be going, yeah, no dramas, I'm going to go over and catch up with my next-door neighbour who's a pretty good bloke, uh, but he's got a gun and he's fired shots. Like, could you imagine walking into that? It's incredibly brave. Like, oh, I, I don't know if I could actually agree to do that. That's a big call. That's a big, he's a brave bloke. Nice fella too. Big call. and time went on a bit and mum was really concerned, hence the reason why she rang triple O and hence the reason why the police arrived. And when the information is conveyed that a person has fired a gun, they were seen holding a gun, and you believe that they have shot themselves, well, they are going to come expecting anything, aren't they? Absolutely. The police, and look, you know what? The Queensland Police Service were confronted with a shit situation that afternoon. Mm-hmm. And I 
have become armed with a lot of knowledge from the Ethical Standards Command, Lead Inspector, and we've had the coronial inquest, which, for the record, take too long. Yep. That's a disgrace, the length of time. I mean, they're thorough, and I understand that, but, like, seriously, let's get some closure, people. Mm. And the way things were explained to me, and you can hear it, you can hear it in those videos when you watch what unfolded at my parents' property that day. It's the sliding doors moments because they were trying to do a, t- a tactical retreat, which is where they basically wanted to get mum and my niece off the property and the two neighbours. And they wanted mum's mobile phone to have on the back table so that they could communicate with dad because they were in the process of trying to get a negotiator. Like you're talking, we're talking like 200 kilometres outside of Brisbane, give or take a few mm-hmm. k's. Like you're out in the sticks. And when the neighbour drove over, he drove sort of halfway down the paddock, right? Because mum mm-hmm. had told him dad was down the bottom of the paddock. So he sort of left the car there, he left the keys in the ignition. As you do, they're in the bush, that's what you do. The police were moving back and were keeping the perimeter of the property secure and there are there are only a handful left like inside the property. And they the last thing that they needed to do for this tactical retreat was to get the keys out of the ignition. So obviously they go around, they check all the motor vehicles, make sure there's no keys. Uh. Because if someone, if you have a person who is armed on a property, they may try and get into a vehicle and drive away. So their goal is to make sure that the vehicles don't work. Anyway, they were going back to get the keys and that's when Dad stormed up the hill again. And that is what led to that last five-minute standoff. So you have sliding doors. So you go, what if the keys weren't in the car? What if they had? What if they'd done that ten minutes earlier and got off the property? How would have it played out? What what would have gone down? They're, they're questions that we will never have answered because what happened is what happened. On the night, my sister had seen a story on the news on TV in in prison. And she she recognised my parents' property and she could see the graphics, you know, like... And she knew. She she knew. I mean, it was their property on TV. And um, one, of the, uh, one of the officers from the prison rang me to try and get in touch with mum. But the phone reception out at where mum and dad's property was was terrible. And I pleaded with them to let me talk to my sister, but they would not... <laughs> They would not. Like, she is inside. And, you know, like, I I know that the prison system deals with all sorts and all types and numerous different offences, but, come on, where's the compassion? Where is the compassion? Yeah. So you write about that in the book that the guard is saying, look, she's right here with me. Can you just confirm it and then I'll tell her? And you're saying, well, if she's right there... Can I please talk to my sister? Can I be the one to explain to her what's happened? And he's saying, well, uh, I don't think they'll give me permission. I don't think it's going to happen. It's so frustrating to read it. I can't imagine the heartache of living through that moment. I try not to get upset anymore. Yeah. But I can picture myself sitting at our dining room table just watching 
my family's world implode. And thinking about the pain that she had in that moment, because she blames, she blames herself. And thinking about my poor mum up there dealing with that, getting questioned by police, and then thinking about what went through my father's head in those couple of hours that afternoon and then in that moment when he was shot. What went through his head? And why did he not listen to them? You know, those police gave him ample opportunity. I've seen the videos from the body-worn cameras. I've listened to the audio. I've heard the gunshots. Why did he not listen? Ultimately, they said to him, you can still hold the gun, just don't point it at us. Then I think about... There was two police officers that fired at Dad. One had a pistol and he missed. One had a rifle and he hit. How do you think they're going today? How do you think their families are going today? How do you think they were the day that they drove home from work that day? I do not hold any hatred towards them whatsoever. Because people people want you to say that. But I don't. And, and you know, over as time has passed and the coronial inquest has gone on, they've been and hadn't done, even my mother feels for those officers on that day. So we've all lost. During the week, one of our listeners suggested that it might be a good idea to share another of our podcasts with you. It's called Calm Your Farm. And it's all about the ways in which people keep their heads together. It seemed to me that this might be the perfect week to share such a show with you. So tacked on to the end of this episode of Australian True Crime is an episode of Calm Your Farm. They're very short. They're about eight or ten minutes long. So stick around for that at the end of this if you're interested. And of course, there'll be a link to Calm Your Farm in the show notes if you'd like to subscribe. You also talked about... Uh, another family tragedy that you found out about subsequently. Mm-hmm. Do you feel prepared to talk about that at all or is that something that you don't go into? No, I'll talk about it because that's the reason. That's what led me to write Shattered. Okay. What is that? So, you know, I was telling you that my brother was consumed by the demons mm-hmm. and the demons got him. They got him because he eventually took his life in the middle part of 2018. You've got to get on with life. It's such a cliche, but life is worth living. No matter how bad things get, life is worth living. And not once did I ever think when I was going through those 67 days that I was going to give up. I have a beautiful wife. I have amazing children. We have a a new four-month-old. Life is important, and I hope I get to live a hell of a lot more of it. 
and I hope that I can tell our new little fella about how great his poppy was and um, how much of a champion bloke his uncle Trent was even though Trent and I had our issues through the years don't get me wrong, everyone does Mm. but deep down they were two very loyal, loving men It it does hurt my heart to think about my father essentially being shot in the heart because I I think if if the coroner could uh, write on the death certificate exactly what it was, it would be died of a broken heart, a shattered heart. If you're experiencing depression or anxiety, call Lifeline on 13 11 14. That's Travis Winks, and his book is called Shattered, 67 Days to a Family's Self-Destruction. It's available now, and there's a link in the show notes to this episode. Thank you to patrons Wyatt Zacker, Kathy Conway Archer, Sarah Lupton, Andrea Caron, and Georgia Ulhorn. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. But as promised, here is an episode of our other podcast. It's called Calm Your Farm. Men of my youth, and I was a you know young teenager and young woman in the 70s, were obsessed with cars, the Monaro, Ford or Holden. Something about speed and power. And it was, it was something I think to do with proving their courage. And it was pulsing with sexuality. It was pulsing with this desire, you know, spraying the champagne. I mean, for goodness sake, the spraying of the champagne. Could you get a more obvious phallic symbol if you tried? It was deeply unsubtle. Jane Caro is one of Australia's most dynamic and sought-after public speakers. She's also a writer, a lecturer, an all-round interesting thinker, called upon to cast her feminist lens across all manner of contemporary conundra. But as you'll learn today, there was a time in Jane's life when such a confident persona would have been unthinkable. I'm Michelle Laurie, and this is Calm Your Farm. Tips and tricks for taking care of you from the unlikeliest of gurus. It's hard to imagine Jane Caro as ever second-guessing herself, but settle in, because she's about to take us on one hell of a ride. I had a florid anxiety neurosis in my 20s, which started when I left school, so I was before I was 18. I went on a trip with some girlfriends around Australia. This would be 1974, early 75. And I became unbelievably and very drearily homesick. I must have been such a pain in the ass to go away with. I just couldn't get myself out of it. And I began to feel like there was something wrong with me, that I was weak, that I, you know, couldn't reach independence, that I wasn't capable of being an adult. You know, all my friends were desperate to get away from their parents. I was terrified. That started me thinking that maybe I wasn't as capable as other people. But then I met the guy who's I'm now married to and went to uni, which I enjoyed, and that all fell away and I thought, oh, I got through that. And then towards the end of university, I had a nervous breakdown. It just hit me like a ton of bricks and I found myself hardly able to function. I had terrible pins and needles in all my extremities, my wrists, my hands, my feet, my ankles. I felt absolutely 
miserable all the time and anxious but I didn't know why didn't know what about there was nothing that I could put a finger on it was just this kind of um, floating dread and then while I was in the group of that I developed a form of OCD which is um I never had the compulsions, like I didn't have to wash my hands a million times or check the locks or anything like that, but I would have this rumination, these uh, intrusive thoughts that just came all the time. And in my case, they were thoughts that any minute now, like literally any minute now, I would lose control and I would do something terrible. So driving a car was quite difficult. You know, if I drove past a pedestrian, I would get panicky. If I was on the train station I would worry that I was going to shove the person in front of me in front of the train now it sounds pathological I've since investigated it and um the defining characteristic of this particular (laughs) obsessive thing is that people never do anything it's the thinking that they're, they're punishing themselves nobody else but this I mean I really thought I'm going crazy they're going to have to lock me up I'm a really uh defective person is the feeling I had about myself Externally, I'm functioning fine. Externally, I'm passing my uni exams. Externally, I'm getting a job. Externally, I've got a good relationship with my partner. I've got friends. You know, I look fine. Inside, I'm an absolutely hopeless mess. I mean, I would do things like sit in important meetings when I got a job and I'd have this sort of feeling like any minute now I'm going to yell out, fuck! Mind you, that would have been funny and probably absolutely the right thing to do. I never did it. But always this awful kind of feeling any minute now, any minute now, any minute now, I'm going to reveal the really terrible person that I actually am. So you can imagine it was not a fun place to live. And that lasted really for about a decade. And one of the things, one of the gifts it gave me, and it gave me many gifts, is that it forced me because it was so florid and dramatic. I mean, being me, it probably had to be florid and dramatic. It forced me to go and seek help. So I had to go go and find people to help me and I went to a variety of different people different professionals psychiatrists psychologists counselors all of whom helped me in some ways none of whom cured me of the OCD but all of whom who taught me things so that was really useful I learned a great deal that I would never have learned if I hadn't had that mental health issue because it makes you ask who am I what am I about why am I like this and that was a huge learning curve for me and incredibly important. The most important person was a counsellor I went to who's now a very close friend of mine who really taught me an enormous... She sort of reparented me and, and reframed things and helped me to lose my... The way I beat myself up all the time. She would always reframe things. So I remember once in particular I said something about, oh, I'm always overreacting. And she said, are you? Why do you say you're overreacting? You know, because people say to me, oh, you're overreacting. And she said, oh, that's interesting. So what are they saying to you when they tell you that you're overreacting? Who decides how much reaction is enough and how much is too much and how much is too little? Who made them God that they get to decide what exactly the right level of reaction is? And that's when I started to realise that it was always men who were telling me that I was overreacting and overemotional. And I started to think my feminism kicked in and I thought, she's right. Fuck that for a joke. They're not God. They don't get to tell me that my reactions are too big. I'm allowed to have my reactions, however big or small they might be. And now no one even tries to tell me I'm overreacting because if they do, they immediately get a lecture on, oh, and can you tell me exactly how much reaction would be acceptable in this set of circumstances? 
where it is you got your degree or your qualification in deciding how much reaction is acceptable. I didn't know you were that person. The arrogance of it and the way I just accepted it. I accepted it as a judgment on me that was reasonable and that I should take on board. She'd do things like that. She'd reframe it. It was incredibly empowering and and liberating in lots of ways, but I still had the neurosis. And then I got pregnant and my first daughter was born prematurely, just went into a sort of midway nursery. And unfortunately in that nursery, she caught a thing called RSV positive bronchiolitis, which is still the biggest killer of babies under one. It's particularly dangerous for premature babies. I had a home for a couple of nights and I realised, my husband and I realised that she was sick and we brought her into Camperdown Children's Hospital and they immediately admitted her. She just got really, really sick and to the point where she stopped breathing in my arms. While I was trying to breastfeed her, went blue. They had to hit the you know, emergency button and they took her out of my hands. And I heard the charge sister saying she had poly over her hand and I could hear her hitting her on the back going, come on, come on, come on. And I remembered that when my friend's baby had been born with a tube around the neck, she told me about how they tried to get her to breathe. They did thankfully manage to do that and saying, come on, come on come on. So I realized what had happened and it happened three times. So they get a breathing and then I'd hear it again. And then they get a breather and I hear it again. I remember when I realized what was happening, I, I just had these instincts and because I've been to so many counselors and psychologists and things, I thought, don't fight your instincts, just follow them. So I felt like it was unsafe to sit on the chair. And so I sat on the floor. Then I felt like it was unsafe to sit on the floor. I needed something behind me. I needed like to be in a corner and there was a pot plant and I got in this corner between the pot plant and the wall. It was weird. It was like an animal needing to feel protected. And I thought, no, this is what you need to do. Don't worry about your dignity. Do what you need to do. And I remember my husband arriving in the middle of all this crisis and he said to me, come out, come out. I said, I don't want to come out. And he said, come out for me. So I came out. Anyway, she got the last available child's intensive care bed in New South Wales that night as officially the sickest baby in the state. And I thought, really thought, well, she's going to die. She was in intensive care, intubated, the full bed. I knew the thing to do was reach out for help. When you're in trouble, ask for help. That was another thing I learned. I'd been doing pregnancy exercise class, a wonderful woman called Juju Sundin. And I rang her and she said, Right, ring my mate, Peter Barr. He's a doctor at the Children's Hospital, but he's also a grief counsellor. So I rang him and he said, I'll meet you in the coffee shop in five minutes. And um, I walked in and he said three sentences to me. He just walked straight up to me, didn't even introduce himself. He said, there's nothing special about you and there's nothing special about Polly, my daughter. Terrible things can happen and they can happen to anyone. Safety is an illusion. Danger is reality. Now, that sounds incredibly brutal. How can you say that to a young mother who's 30 years old, first child who's nearly died, may yet die, you know, blah, blah, blah. But yet it was like bricks were falling off my shoulders. First of all, he was completely honest with me, and that's what I wanted. I didn't want soft soaping. And he was also telling me that I had done nothing wrong. I hadn't caused it. I couldn't solve it. I was out of control. And that was the key in the end. Those three sentences started to give me the key, which I slowly unraveled and realised that what I had been doing, what my anxiety was about, was really about trying to control the uncontrollable. 
trying to stay safe when that's an impossible goal. And I think to some extent our entire society is caught up in that anxiety and neurosis now of trying to control the uncontrollable, trying to keep the bad things from happening, but we're not doing it in the right way, we're doing it in the wrong way. So we're trying to pretend they don't exist instead of actually turning and doing the things we know we can do that would fix them. And slowly I realised that I wasn't that powerful. I couldn't control the uncontrollable. I could control my reaction to things. I could, with my children, for example, I stopped trying to keep them totally free of danger. I thought, you minimise the danger if you can. But also you look at it like if my daughter wanted to go walk on a narrow wall when she was quite little and I'd hold her hand and you know, my attitude was always is if there's a 5% chance she might fall off and hurt herself and a 95% chance she'll have fun, I'll go with the 95%. Just without even really noticing it, my anxiety dwindled. It didn't disappear overnight. It was like a magic wand. It just dwindled and dwindled and dwindled until I just didn't have it anymore. And in fact, I think some people might say these days I may have overcorrected. I am so totally not anxious and it's because I realized that safety is an illusion and a false goal you don't try to be safe you don't try to avoid the things that frighten you in fact if something frightens me now I always think to myself okay that's a really good reason to do it for more tips on taking care of you from the unlikeliest of gurus including recipes for relaxing body products you can make at home things to read and watch instead of scrolling through your phone, cheap, cheerful and calming gift ideas, go to calmyourfarm.com.au. We'd love to hear your ideas too. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.